Well, brilliant. All our young people are welcome to... I said that, didn't I? Just so you got the message. How about we just... Would you mind if I just join me in just a word of prayer? Is that cool? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of a church. It's, uh, it's your idea. In actual fact, we're called your body, and I thank you for that. I thank you for your words of truth that you've given us from your word. I pray that we'd be incredibly good soil for your truth today, that you'd plant something in our hearts or just grow something really fruitful uh, so that we would just not have information today, but actually there'd come transformation. The Holy Spirit, you take what you do what I can't do, and that is quicken your truth to people's hearts today. In Jesus' name. Everyone agreed? Said? Great. Um, last week, we just talked about assumptions. If you were here last Sunday, I'd encourage you, if you um, well, if you weren't here, I should say, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast. But we talked about assumptions. You know what assumptions are? Things that you kind of think about, but sometimes um, you're presuming that it may happen like this, but it may never as well. Um, and we mentioned, you know, that sometimes one of the greatest assumptions, we assume that God will do things the way that we would do them. Have you ever found that? And that sometimes we assume that God will do them in the time frame that we think he should do them. And it's interesting that God never has, never has consulted my diary when doing stuff because he's God and I'm not. Isn't that true? And in actual fact, what I think should happen doesn't always happen because the best plan is always God's plan. Because he's actually um, has got, is for you and not against you. So even though the timing mightn't be your timing, please understand that God has the best interest at heart when we continue to surrender and submit and commit our lives to him. He is, he is got it. He's got our back, which is great when we continue to put him first in our lives. He wants to be involved in our lives. So, so this week, I just want to continue about assumptions because we can make assumptions that cause us to miss out on wonderful blessings in our life. We can assume too many things. People over history have proven that they've made assumptions about things and about life and about situations, and they've been proven incredibly wrong uh, in the statements they've made. If you were to consider for me with just a moment, I just find these now, in hindsight, looking back at some of the assumptions that people have made, quite even quite humorous. But there was a, a gentleman called Dr. Langer. He was a professor of natural history in London in the 1800s. And Dr. Langer said this. He warned that the train travel would never work. Okay, train travel will never work. A train will travel at such speed that passengers will literally be asphyxiated. Do you know what asphyxiated is? You can't breathe. I've, never, I've actually never driven on the tilt train. Has anybody driven on the tilt train? Can you breathe? Praise God. So this gentleman didn't last as a professor too long <laughs> because he was proven incredibly wrong in his assumption. There was another gentleman called Simon Newcomb, American professor of natural history, oh, sorry, of astronomy. Let's get it right. Astronomy in the 1800s. And he insisted that objects heavier than air will never be able to fly. He had the unfortunate uh, situation happen that he lived in the same era as the two um, brothers called the Wright brothers, who actually designed and built a plane and flew it across a, 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 a land, some area, a couple hundred meters. And he was proven incredibly wrong that things heavier than air can fly. Um, assumptions. 
he got it wrong as well. And unfortunately, uh, uh, he didn't go too far in his profession as well. Uh, his career kind of nosedived, so to speak, not long after. But maybe the boldest assumption I've left to this guy called Charles, du Charles Duval. Charles Duval was the commissioner of the American Patents Office in 1899. This is what he said. Patent, you know what a patents office is? In America? It's, it's those people who, who uh, register new inventions so when no one else can steal the idea. Okay? So he was the commissioner of the American Patents Office. In 1899, he said this, everything, and I quote, that has been invented, has been invented. There will never be another thing invented. How wrong do you think he got it? 1899. My, what was he thinking in that statement? Uh, assumptions. Could you see this morning that assumptions are like roadblocks to our lives? They hinder our going forward. They stop us from thinking beyond, well, nothing more can ever happen because this is it. This is final. And I want to tell you, we don't serve a God of assumptions. We serve a God of faith. A God that says, hey, things are very much possible. Humanity, you might think, maybe you've thought now that maybe we've invented everything we can invent. I don't think so. I think we've got to, I think you'll find if we, if of course the Lord Jesus doesn't come back, I think there'll be some incredible things invented and um, uh, put out there in society in these next 20, 30 years. Look out. But assumptions. So uh, there's some things that I've learned that I've even assumed and I've thought about that I've assumed over my lifetime, and I've found that people can assume in relation to Jesus and what he actually says. Now, um, so I want to share some of them with you this morning, uh, the things that Jesus never said, and particularly about his church. Uh, do you realize this morning it's, uh, his church is not just four walls? This is church. Uh, we are his church, but it's not the building, it's not the structure, uh, it's not even the programs, it's the people, it's you and me, okay? You're the church. Uh, we're the church in here, you'll be the church tomorrow morning when you go to work or school or wherever you go. You'll be the church when you go on holiday, you're still the church of the living God, you're the body of Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered your life to him, you're a part of his church. And so when I say that I want to talk about the assumptions, the things that people assume that Jesus uh, said, but he never said about his church... I'm really, not, I'm really talking about um, the things that he never said to us about his church. He never said these things about it, but sometimes, and I have discovered, I can assume about his church. Here's, here's, here's one of the first ones I think that we've got to be careful that we can assume about what Jesus, we think Jesus might have said. And maybe you've never thought that, but in your kind of heart, this is the way you've taken your life. The first thing, are you interested? Are you interested Okay, here's the first thing that Jesus never said. Find a good church. I'll just pause for effect. <laughs> he never said find a good church. <laughs> Before you stone me, there's nothing wrong with good churches. In actual fact, I think there's a lot of good churches in our city. Okay, But the idea that I can't find a good church so I won't bother to go to any church is really contrary to everything Jesus taught that's what I'm really saying. The idea, I say it again, that we, we can't find a good church, so if I can't find a good church, I'm not going to go to any church, is really contrary uh, to what Jesus really said. 
Uh, what Jesus did say about us and being together and, uh, is found in John 13, 35. And it says this, By this all will know that you are my disciples. I did have a memory stick there. It's, it's up there. Oh, there it is. What happened to the another? <laughs> Love for one, not her. So just love each other, but not her. <laughs> Let me finish my verse. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Interesting. The thing about church is you get an opportunity to love other people who are different to you. Thus the slide. Some of you might think I'm just a tiger. Some of you might think I love a bit of fun. I'm more of a monkey. I don't care what kind of animal you want to kind of relate to. But the reality is, is Jesus says that you have an opportunity within the body of Christ that, that this wonderful uh, organization that he set up, we didn't think up the idea. He set it up in the early church uh, on the day of Pentecost. And he says, you know what? You have a wonderful opportunity to love other people who are really different to you. Really different to you. Now, that isn't so hard. You married one. <laughs> now, I know that some things definitely got to be similar. You've got to have the same direction, same vision when you get married. Same, you know, you've got to have those type of things. But sometimes, you know, really outgoing people marry really kind of relaxed people and not so outgoing. And that's cool. You know, and you, happen, you manage to love each other generally, don't you? So, you know, in the body of Christ... We, uh, we find the opportunity to love one another. Jesus says to love one another means that there will be times. And think about this. His verse says, if we're going to, the fact that he said you've got to love one another means possibly there's going to be opportunities for you not to want to love one another. There's going to be opportunities. Uh, and here is the thing. When you learn to love people who don't see things the way you see them, you can actually grow up in your character for the better. Isn't that interesting? You mean the thing I don't want to do, if I do it, I can actually develop my inner strength, some really better ways of doing life? Exactly. Isn't it amazing? I, the truth is, I never have grown when I'm just, there's no pressure upon me to change. But when I find that I have to love people who I find that they're a bit different, I actually find something happens in here in my life and I start to grow up and get a bit more mature, so to speak. Let's never be so mature that we go off and get rotten. You know, a mature tomato is a tomato that's had it. But maturity in the sense of maturity is in growing up in Christ and realizing that the fact is all of us... Uh, Jesus says in the church, we, we just got to have this there's a love that we can have for one another and it doesn't change anything just because we're different from each other. Praise God for that. So there's a thing we can learn. The Bible uses this great metaphor. And the metaphor is about his church. He says that the church is like a bride. So um, Jesus is the groomsman. Uh, where the bride, does, that makes sense, doesn't it? Just look across the room at someone, uh, and it's easy to do for you guys and you guys because you kind of 
facing this way. Look at someone and, and realize that they're the bride of Christ or they're the, the, the bride as much as you are. And uh, this wonderful uh, thing needs to happen and that we uh, have got to come together and see that. So uh, there's a verse in the Bible, Revelations 21.9. It says, um, come, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. In other words, who's the lamb? Jesus is the lamb that was slain. And his wife is us, the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And if you think of that whole metaphor and that whole example, that's a wonderful thing. Just imagine a, um, a man standing at the altar and he's looking back down the aisle as, he's, as he's, um, they're about to get married. And right at that moment, he just has this incredible, I mean, he looks at that woman and she, he thinks she's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, man, you just lost it right there. There was an opportunity for some brownie points right there, guys. Men, would you agree? Oh, a few more. Some of you don't know. See, it's an incredible picture of Jesus and us. The Bible actually says, it says um, in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, but just as... Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What an incredible picture. Because Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus. He said, you guys, come on, wake up to yourselves. Do you realize what Christ done for the... Not only did he love the church, he gave himself for the church. He was willing to lay down his life for the church because it was his bride. And he says, husbands, love your wives like that. Wow, that's that's a big step up for some of us. So we've got to consider that. But, you know, today, if you think about it this way... If someone said to you men today, you know what, I think you're, an incre- you're, a, you're, a, good, you're a good guy, but your wife, <laughs> I could leave her. <laughs> In actual fact, when, we, when you come around, you're welcome, but could you just leave her at home? And as a man today, you'd say, hey, just wait a second, buddy. You know, we're one. Um, you know, if, if you don't, you want me as a friend, you need my wife as well. You know, if you don't get, you just can't have me because if you don't like, if you like me but don't like my wife, you're either going to get both of us or neither of us. Isn't that true? You see, the same way, um, in the same fashion, we say we love God or love Jesus, but we want nothing to do with his bride. Some people say, well, I love God. Have you ever had that conversation? Yeah, I love God, but I don't want anything to do with his bride, the church. Well, just wait a second. God says, I love that. I died. I bled for that church. And, 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 and it's the people. What? So, so the reality is Jesus never said, find a good church. He says, I think Jesus, what he was really saying in life, he was saying, find a church, join it, and you improve it. You improve it. You go in there and start to love. You go in there and start to be his church. Because that's the thing I died for. That's the thing, that's the thing that's my wife, that's my bride, and I love it. So if you love me, you're going to have to love my bride. You know, if someone says to me, well, James, you, I, I, I can handle you, but forget about Michelle. I'm going to say, I'm sorry, buddy, we're going to have trouble connecting as friends if you can't accept me and my wife because we're together. I love her. And to be honest, I love her more uh, and so then maybe, uh, uh, no, I won't say that, um, but I, 
I love her enough to say that, you know, if you want to be friends with us, come on, you've got to love us both. So we can sometimes say that to God. Can you appreciate how God feels about it? I think he's incredibly gracious. But we say, you know, I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. You're great. But as for your church, yeah, I don't like that. And really, we're saying I just don't like sometimes the people in church. Because that's what the church is, isn't it? So Jesus never, Jesus never said find a good church. But he did, I think, intimate in the scriptures find a church and improve it because I always see the early church as a place was far from imperfect whether it was the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus or Galatia or wherever they all had their little things that were happening in them but I tell you what God didn't disband them because the people in them weren't good I want to tell you what our church is our church is not a cruise ship it's a hospital ship come on because it's there that we gather people who God wants to touch and encourage and minister his love and grace. Isn't that good news? Because if we're a cruise ship, we would never really interact. We'd just sit on the, on the deck and sunbake and uh, enjoy our lives. But, you know, a hospital ship, you've got to get involved. You've got to support. You've got to encourage. You've got to love. You've got to bandage some wounds. Or, you know, you've got to help some people out. You've got to, you know, whatever it is. So it's his church. Here's another thing that Jesus talks about he, he, that we can assume, that I've assumed over the years... That Jesus said, but he has never said it, and, and, and it's interesting, but Jesus, we can assume that Jesus said, loving people <clears throat> means just agreeing with everything they say and do. Okay. Oh. See, I had this understanding, and I think you would too, if, when I explained to you, that just agreeing with whatever is really us sometimes saying, I really don't care. Jesus said in John chapter, sorry, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this in John chapter 3.16, a verse that you know, for God so, <clears throat> what? Loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, it doesn't say that God dis... In actual fact, the reason that Jesus came to earth is because he didn't agree with us. I'm glad God didn't agree with my sinful ways. I'm glad that God reached down into my, sin, my life and said, Hey, James, if you keep on doing that, you're going to destroy your life. I'm glad that he sent Jesus into the world. And it's interesting, he didn't say God so loved the world, so God so uh, um, agreed with the world that he sent Jesus. No, just God loved us. God didn't agree with us, he just loved us. He embraced us, and we needed to be embraced because we needed a hope and a future and a salvation, didn't we? If I was left in my old ways of living, folks, I wouldn't be here this morning. And neither maybe would you because we didn't have a hope. I didn't have a hope, but I'm thankful that he gave me a hope. And, he, and Jesus came and said, James, I love you. I don't agree with you, but I love you, and I want you to see a better way. I'm, a, I'm a glad about that. So Jesus didn't agree. But he loved us. So loving people is not agreeing with people. Loving people is also not arguing with people. You don't have to argue. Understand just because you don't agree doesn't mean you have to be disagreeable. Can you grab that? Just because you don't, doesn't, you know. Uh, loving people is caring enough to go sometimes after you, you know, a good friendship can handle the heavy, you build a bridge of relationship and you know why you build a bridge of relationship with each other? So then sometimes it can handle the heavy traffic of disagreement. 
and sharing with each other, hey, if you keep on doing that, you're going to hurt your life. So I find that true love is not always agreeing, but, it is in a, but it's not being disagreeable. Not being a person who just has to tell everybody what they got wrong with them. You know, often we don't have to do that. I often find that people sometimes know it's just you sometimes loving them enough and uh, the light starts to turn on. I think sometimes we don't fight the darkness, just turn the light on and the darkness will flee in people's hearts if you share with them Jesus. You know, if I was indifferent to my children as they grow up through their infant years and their teenage years, if I was indifferent to their welfare, um, I wouldn't have bothered to say no to them on occasions. You know, as they were growing up as little infants, I, there was some food that, I, I, that they, if they'd given their, their way, they would have had every day. They would have had McDonald's every day as a two-year-old. Come on. If I was as a two-year-old and living and McDonald's was around in those days, I would have, had, I would have wanted McDonald's every day as well. But, you know, I can remember as my children grew up, I had to say no. And, and unfortunately, every day we'd drive past McDonald's at the... Um, at the shopping center area there, and, and if my little girls got a, uh, you know, got a, a glimpse of that sign of the, of the golden arches, they would say, there was one word they seemed to learn after they learned mum and dad, it was chippies, <laughs> chippies, and we'd say, no, no chippies, and there'd be these initially some tears, because there was going to be no, it, it wasn't even every week, it wasn't even every month sometimes, but somehow they got it in their head that chippies was the ultimate food, ultimate food, chips, french fries, McDonald's, whatever you want to call them, um, that was the ultimate food to their whole eternal youth and health and wholeness and happiness in life. And who knows, a chippies every day wasn't going to do them any good. So I was concerned about their welfare, so I fed them other wonderful things like carrots and Brussels sprouts <laughs> and broccoli, because I was a concerned father. You know, I can remember as they grew up in their teenage years, as a concerned father, there was times they wanted to go out with, you know, they were 13, they wanted to go out with 18-year-olds, not boys, because, you know, but just other 18-year-olds, um, and... And uh, I'd say, no, honey, when you get older, you can do that. Um, and there would be tears. And there, I think all my girls have had their tears. And I've stared, we've kind of stared each other down. No, you're just terrible. Yes, I'll be terrible. I don't like you. Oh, that's okay. I still love you. Well, is the answer yes? No. Oh, I really hate you now. But as a concerned father, you see, I wasn't agreeing. I couldn't agree to it. Because if I agreed to it, I'd destroy their lives. See, God looks at us and he doesn't agree often with us, but he does. He's not disagreeable. He loves us. And as we talk to, we treat and love, see, please, can I understand? Don't talk to people you haven't built a relationship with and tell them all their wrongs. It's not going to work. Build a relationship and bridge a relationship in love, and that's what God wants. Hey, can I just share with you this passage of Scripture in Matthew 7? It's an amazing passage of Scripture. It talks in Matthew 7, 1 to 5. It says, you've heard it before. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Or log, as some versions say of Bible. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank or a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. This is what Jesus said. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If you were reading those verses from verse 1, we would think that we are never to judge anyone or any situation. And you've probably had it said to you, don't judge. Don't judge. Now, there is some important truth in that. But if you read the rest of the five verses, and particularly verse 5, you will see that what it's talking about, it outlines how we are to make a judgment. Okay? And it says, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Can you see that what it's saying is, and I know I've shared this sometime before in church, and it's talking about the reality of before you judge, consider yourself. And if you can see some issues in your own heart and life, deal with that. Because judgment is always sometimes, and we've said before, putting people down. But when you consider that your life is is exactly on the same level with everybody else, in actual fact, their speck is nowhere near as bad as your plank, then you've got to deal with that, and then you make a judgment on the level of saying, hey, um, with the, the retrospect and the understanding that you are far from perfect and you don't stand in judgment of them, you're just understanding and helping them to see something else. So it's very important. See, I see Jesus is not forbidding us to condemn wrong. He's not forbidding us to have an opinion. Um, What he's asking us to do is not have a spirit of fault finding. You walk through life going, whoa, look at that person speeding as if you've never done it yourself. Whoa, look at that. You know, we've got it. And it's not that you don't say, well, that's wrong. You just know that you've done the wrong thing as well. So there doesn't come this spirit of fault finding. I've always got to look for the fault in a person because I've got to sort them out. No, you don't. You need to let God sort you out so that you can be a better vessel for him to use in loving and helping others. See, he who develops a judgmental attitude strains themselves from others, isolates themselves, hinders the spirit of fellowship, and then, of course, can create a reaction of judgment in return upon their own life. So we've got to be aware of that. Jesus never said loving people means getting uh, just agreeing with everything they say and do, but he never said just go about having a spirit or an attitude of judgment or fault-finding on people's lives. Um, here's the last one. What we can do, we can assume. We can assume that Jesus says, I will bless you despite your negative words and bad attitude. Ooh, there was a low hum there. I will bless, we, we think, I, you know, I think God, you'll just bless me. Live however I want through the week. Oh God, just bless me. Live. No, no. I know I've got this wrong attitude, but Lord, just bless. Now God is incredibly gracious. And it's not that he doesn't want to bless. Get this right. It's not that he doesn't want to encourage. It's not that he doesn't want to help. But we build the bridge of blessing in our lives as we come to the promises of God and take a hold of those promises, put them in our hearts, and thus have a 
different attitude in how we approach life. And how we see, see the word of God says in, um, in Matthew 9 29, for instance, he, he came to this person who needed to be healed and he touched their eyes. And Jesus said, This, according to your faith, let it be to you. According, so you can have all the promises of God, and all those promises can be of no effect because it's not just what we know, but it's how we apply what we know to our circumstances. According to our faith, that the promise of God starts to be realized. It, just, it doesn't have to be something incredible. It's just got to be a simple trust in faith, I think, is a simple trust in Jesus, in Jesus Christ or his Father, God. It's trusting God. I've discovered the wrong attitudes hijack anything good from happening. And it's not that God hijacks it. I hijack myself in my attitude because I don't allow the promise of God to become real and truthful in my heart because I keep on thinking of the whatever it may be, the wrong attitude. Or negativity or whatever it is. Paul had put it really simple when Paul said this. He said in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant all that we ask or think. Wow, I want that promise. Jesus, you could do more than I could ever ask or think. Exceedingly abundant. I want that for me and all of us. But here's the clincher. According to the power that works in us. What power? Well, you know, maybe is it the power, depending on the power, have maybe you hijacked yourself with the negative or the fearful or the ashamed attitudes you've got to deal with and say, I need to get rid of those. Maybe that's the power that's working in you. Is it the power of fear working in you? Is it the power of, of, of attitudes or grumpiness or is it, is it the power of... Um, of um, condemnation, I'm not condem- or condemnation can be one in your own life, or really harsh, fault-finding attitude towards others. Is that the power that works? If that's the power that works on you, is, would it stand to reason that the promise may not come to pass and that there won't be exceedingly abundant things happen because, and all, all we ask or think is because we're allowing some other power to work in our heart? Why don't you let the power of Christ, the resurrection power, I don't care what you've done wrong, I, just, I think God just wants you to have a blessed future by living and for Him and surrendering your life of the past into His hands so He can walk you into the future of blessing. So what power works in us? Is it the power of hope and belief? We don't get all things right, but is it that power of hope and belief that things we commit to God in prayer, we can trust Him to handle it? What is my faith pointing towards this morning? Is it my faith pointing at continued disappointment? Or am I always upset about the missed opportunities of what I should have or what I should be doing or people should acknowledge me? Are we always focusing on that or are we looking at our saviour himself but instead if I change the attitude of my heart and the direction of my faith and say well even though the situation looks glim and no light yet is shining at the end of that tunnel I won't stop believing God I'm going to have disappointment I'm going to have heartache I, I understand that but the truth is I won't stop believing I won't stop talking to him about it and I'll keep trusting him how many of you know when you do that you create the building material, or you give the building material for God to continue to work in that situation. It's not like God wants to condemn us. Or wants to, God always wants to bless. But I, I maybe create this, 
limit in my life as I continue to not allow faith and just to trust in him to rise in my heart. And I know that that's a work in progress for many of us. It's not going to happen all in one go. But just you know, let him take you another step of trust. Let him take you another step of moving forward. Can I just share another passage of scripture, which I think is incredibly powerful and sometimes has been misinterpreted over the decades and centuries. Matthew 15, 22 to 28. Let me read it to you. And behold, a woman of Cana came from the region that cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Who wouldn't want God's hand of grace upon your daughter if she's demon-possessed? But he answered her, Not a word. This is Jesus. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, The disciples interpreted that Jesus wasn't interested. Send her away. She cries out after us. Get rid of her, Jesus. Jesus was interested, but the way he responded was very interesting. And he answered and said, I was, not, was I not sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Whoa, that's a state. You know what he's saying? Hey, I'm only sent to the Jewish people. Was I not sent just to the Jews? Not this, this, this lady from Kenya who's a Gentile? That's a bit of a harsh statement, isn't it? And then she came and worshipped him even after that statement. And she said, Lord, help me. Whoa. But he answered and he gives her another backhand. This is Jesus. He said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. And then she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from your master's table. And then Jesus kind of said, because he was... He was, he was leading her to a point. He said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it, be, uh, let it be to you as you desire. And the daughter was healed from that very hour. Let's unfold the story real quick. If you've ever read this conversation between Jesus and this Gentile woman, you, and you thought, um, that seems a little harsh. You're in good company. We possibly all have initial reading of this passage. But please understand, Jesus' treatment of her was to probe her faith and to draw out the great faith in her heart, which he did. And his words to her were more like a surgeon with a scalpel to bring healing. Uh, it was still going to hurt, but it was going to bring healing. Okay? Her request was, heal my demon-possessed daughter. So for this lady, would she react in anger and say, if Jesus, that's your attitude, forget it. I'll live with my daughter's problems. If you see that you're only meant to go to the Jews and not the Gentiles, and you think that I'm just a little dog who crawls around on the floor picking up crumbs, forget it. See you later. She got peeved off. But she could have got peeved off. But the truth is, she humbled herself and said, Jesus, I'll take whatever crumbs of healing you give my daughter. Jesus is probing her to stir up her faith. I think, Jesus, you're pretty hard on her. No, he, know, he knew because he's the God of all knowing. He knew what she needed to prompt her and to stir a reaction of faith so her daughter could get healed. What an incredible God we serve. He, now, would he treat you like that? Not necessarily, because maybe you don't need that. Would he treat me like that? Not necessarily. But he knew exactly how to treat her so that faith rose up. And he had an incredible compassion for this Gentile lady and her demon-possessed daughter. You see, 
Her reaction was excellent and proved to Jesus that she was a genuine lady of real belief in her heart that Jesus was the only one who could really um, set her daughter free. And at that time, she had the opportunity to get angry, frustrated, and generally upset with Jesus. She responded, and the, and the response that she gave to Jesus was, well, if I'm a dog, I'm a dog. That's cool. But I just I know you're the answer to my issues. And as I just... Even gather the crumbs of healing that you may give me, that'll be enough. In other words, she, she loved Jesus even with his harsh truth. Her response was the, Jesus' response was, that's what I'm looking for, heal the daughter. Not because she was of a certain, whether she was Gentile or Jew or a different race, but she had a heart of faith even when given an opportunity to have a bad attitude. Her response created the building material for Jesus to do a miracle and heal her daughter. Folks, in my limited understanding and ability to teach the scripture, please dive into that and see if you can see any other way. Because that's how I see it. That we have a gracious God that reaches out to us. He takes sometimes a scalpel and it hurts, but he's trying to bring healing. He's trying to bring truth. Our surrender to him is an opportunity for his grace and love to flow. It's, that's what he looks like. For He looks for our surrender of our hearts to him. When everything is gloomy and everything looks bad, say, Jesus, I haven't got any other answers. I just love what the three Hebrew men in, in the book of Daniel said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king said, you guys are going to burn in the fire if you don't kneel down and worship me. Those three Hebrew men said, that's okay. We have a trust in our God. And even if our God doesn't save us from the fire, come on, you know the story. Even if he doesn't save you from the fire, we will still trust and love our God. I think in the end, what real trust is, not trusting for just the answers that I need, but trusting my God that whatever happens, his will be done. That's an incredible trust. There's a scripture that we'll end with this morning. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. This is a verse that many of us know. Notice Jesus, what Jesus didn't say in this verse. He didn't say, come to me, and I'll give you all your answers and everything you asked me for straight away. He didn't say that, did he? He said, come to me. He didn't say, I'll give you. He said, I'll come to me and I'll give you. Come on. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Sometimes I come to God and say, God, the answers in my time frame and how I want it. And God says, well, if I did that, it wouldn't end up the very best result that I could give you. So you're going to have to be patient and you're just going to have to trust me. See, when we stop, stop our struggle with life and rest in him in the midst of our struggle, that's what he gives us. He gives us rest. Why does he do this? Because he wants to wean your heart off the love of things in this world and even the things you think are going to give you peace and joy and teach you to place your heart in his hands so he'll give you rest. Jesus has a wonderful way of giving you rest even in the midst of the storm in the midst of the, um, the issues that are unfolding, the unjust things that are happening, he can give you incredible peace and rest. 
And when you look at the storm and say, you know what, storm, I'm not going to look to you. I'm going to look to the one who gives me rest. That's what trust is all about. There was a, um, a competition happened last century in Europe. And it was a competition. And you know, some of you know this story so well. But let me repeat it for the sake of the power of the thought. The competition was for the, the, all the famous painters to paint a picture. And it had to be the ultimate picture of rest and peace and serenity. And so all the famous painters painted and uh, submitted their um, paintings to the judging panel. And the judging panel sat in front of the... And they, and they displayed all the paintings in an art gallery. And the people would walk around and look at these paintings and critique them. But the judges had to make their final decision. And as they walked around, they looked at the paintings. And there was a painting of a, a, a lake with just glassy water. It was just pure in Switzerland. It just reflected the snowy mountains. And there was two swan, black swans, just kind of gliding through the water effortlessly with all their little signets, little, you know, little swans, they're called signets, I think, kind of gliding after them. And, and they said, surely that is the greatest picture of peace. And then there was another picture of a, um, of a beautiful field with all these poppies and, and all the little poppies. There's literally thousands and thousands of poppies. And there's a husband and wife right in the middle of that field just relaxing in each other's arms and enjoying each other's company. And the sun was shining and the birds were kind of in the trees and there was a gentle breeze you could see. And surely they thought, that's an incredible picture of peace. And then there was um, uh, other pictures. I must, I'll just have a quick look just to make sure I get the next one right. Um, that'll do. <laughs> but there was another picture. The ultimate picture that won the prize of the most restful and peaceful. And you, you, some of you know what it is. But it was a picture, on, when you first looked at it, you think, that is not a picture of peace or rest. It was a tumultuous waterfall falling, you know, 100 meters to the rocks, jagged rocks below and the, and the um, spray rising up off the rocks. And, and just this incredible, overhead was this storm that was erupting in the heavenlies. And, and, uh, and the wind, you could see, was blowing, even though it was a still picture. You could see the trees that had been swayed to one direction because of the, the in, tumultuous wind that was just pushing the trees that direction. And, you know, and at the outset, you'd look at that picture and you think, there's nothing there that speaks of peace and rest. And yet, as you look deeper, and this is why it won it, there in the cleft of a rock just to the side of the waterfall, you guessed it, it was this little mother bird on her nest, had built her nest. And there she is sitting on the nest, she's eyes closed, asleep, we can only assume, sitting on her eggs, completely at peace, and yet around her is complete turmoil. I want to tell you, that's the kind of rest our God can give us as we put our hope and trust in Him. The turmoil may be around, but the peace of God can surpass, it says in Scripture, your understanding. Come on. If there's one thing that Jesus said, he said, come on, don't assume that I'm going to just unfold everything, even though you don't allow me to bring peace and rest in your life. It probably won't happen until you come and just allow him and surrender. He's not looking for perfection. He's just looking for some trust levels in your heart just to come another step up. And say, come on. He relates to us in our pain. 
He, can, he relates to us in our heartache. But he just says, hey, where do you really trust this morning? Can we stand together as we close? Can we just close our eyes for a moment this morning? And let me ask this question. To get to this point where we can actually come to, um, you know, receive that, there's a, there's a surrendering of our heart in commitment to Jesus Christ. There's a saying yes to Jesus. There's a, there's a putting Him first in our lives. They're saying, Jesus, I not just kind of know about you, but I actually want to believe in you. And if you're here today and never taken that step of belief, never said, yep, I believe. And the Bible just says this, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, uh, you can know salvation, they call it, which is a wonderful thing. Salvation from what, you may ask? Well, I think two areas. Salvation may be from our old ways of life <laughs> that want to destroy us and the things that aren't so good for us. And salvation for eternity. Heaven would be our destiny. That's what Jesus promises. But it takes a surrendering to him. It's saying, yes, I just don't want to know. I know that maybe you're, you're there, God, but I actually want to believe. And to do that, I need a belief and a confession. And I want to make it really easy today. I just want to pray with you today. I'd actually say a prayer and you could repeat that prayer where you stand today. But I want um, you to, first of all, just say yes to Jesus. And that is putting your hand up and I can see that hand. Could we close our eyes just for a moment? So if today you've never received Christ into your life, I, I, I just love to see the hand. Put your hand up and, I'll, and say, yeah, pray for me. And I'll ask you to pray with me. Anybody today? Or maybe for, again, maybe you've kind of walked away from that which you know you should be walking with Jesus and you've just kind of turned your back on and saying, yeah, I need to put him first again. If there's anybody here this morning, just keep it up till I can see that hand and you can put it to anybody this morning that just would say, yes, thank you. Anybody else this morning? You can put your hand down. I thank you for that. Anybody else this morning to say yes to Jesus? Okay. Well, how about together as a church, we just pray a prayer. And I want you to repeat it after me, and, and particularly for our people who raised their hands, the person who raised their hand this morning. So let's pray. You make it your own prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning just as I am, and I thank you that you won't leave me this way. I now come to you. I believe in my heart that you, God, raised Jesus from the dead so that my sin could be forgiven. Thank you that you take that now. And I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. So become my Lord. I receive you into my life and I know you receive me as your child right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, I thank you today. I thank you for the ones and the twos and the threes and the people who respond to you. Because right at this moment, it says all heaven breaks loose with thankfulness and praise. Even if it's, a, if it's coming back again, 
how joyous and how wonderful that is. Jesus, I thank you that you went after the one lamb and left the 99 and brought the one back. I thank you that you do that this morning. So, Father, we give you all the honor and praise. We believe that commitment and response to you is the doorway to how you want us to live for you and the blessing that wants to follow. We thank you, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this morning, we're going to just for a moment take a moment to say, God, I, uh, as we sing this song, I come in surrender. I come in to say, Father, in that which, you know, there's some things I, I can never handle on my own. And I tell you what, I've tried to, and it just doesn't work. You just desperately, we just need to say, God, I need your strength. I need to trust you. God, it's like the man who said, I believe, but help my belief. It's this morning, I trust you, but help my trust just to be trusting in you, God. Because I'm weak in my own strength, but in you I can have great strength. So this morning as we're standing here, I wonder if you just let me pray for you where you are and just lift your hand and say, I just, God, I just surrender afresh. I just need your fresh trust in my heart. Lift your hand, come on. Lift it to him, and I want to just pray right now. Behind your hand is your heart. Behind your hand is your heart. And saying, Father, in what I face, this storm cloud is not going to beat me because, God, if I I give you the building blocks, if I trust you, if I let my faith just rise a couple notches this morning, I know that you you can start to work. So, Father, right now, with every hand that's raised, I commit people to you. And I ask, Lord, that we would be a people, that people that their hands are raised would just know Lord, your strength and your encouragement in their lives. As they would seek, Lord, to trust you more. We need your help in doing that. We can't, we're human in so many ways, God. We see the issues, we see the struggles, but this morning we see the Savior. We see the the, uh, answer. And Lord, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, you do what I can't. Bring peace and rest to their hearts and lives as they seek to go forward and walking in all that blessing that you got for them. Father, I thank you this morning. We humble our hearts before you. And we know that you, are, Lord, look on a humble heart and say, yes, amen. Let's start to work on this situation. So, Father, we thank you today and commit our lives for every person, for every struggle they face. We yield it to you. And we thank you for your hope and your help in our lives. In Jesus' name. And if you agree this morning, come on. Amen. Come on, let's just sing this song this morning and truly uh, continue to surrender and give to Him.